0: So without further ado, um, let's get started with our first talk on the psychodynamics of social networking from Dr. Aron Balik. So Aaron is a psychotherapist, cultural theorist and author applying ideas from depth psychology to culture and technology. He's an honorary senior lecturer at the Department for Psychosocial and Psychoanalytic Studies at the University of Essex. As a psychological con- consultant for the media, he's advised and contributed to a variety of projects that aim to bring quality mental health content to programming for young people and adults alike. Arne has been an agony uncle for many years for both CBBC and BBC Radio 1, online, on the radio, and on the television. His books include The Psychodynamics of Social Networking, Connected Up, Instantaneous Culture and the Self, which he'll speak on today, the Illustrated Children's Self-Help book, Keep Your Cool, How to Deal with Life's Worries and Stress, and most recently, The Little Book of Calm, Tame Your Anxieties, Face your fears and live free. Aaron is a director of Stillpoint Spaces, an interna- international psychology co-working, therapy and events hub in London, which I have been a member of and can highly recommend. You can learn more about Aaron's work on his website www.aronbalak.com, and more about Stillpoint Spaces at www.stillpointspaces.com. So, Aaron, it's a pleasure to have you with us here today. Um, I'm really excited about this. Whenever you're ready, let's just let's just get started.
1: Okay. Great, Uh, thanks for that wonderful introduction Niall. Um, Hi, good morning everyone. Um, I'm sharing my slide, my first slide with you and I just want to reflect for a second as I do how uh, this sort of COVID situation um, mimics uh, because of our reliance on technology, it kind of mimics a lot about what I'm going to be talking about today. So for example, I can't see any of you, um, but you can see me. And I know that I'm talking to several of you. I don't know how many. And at the same time, I'm sitting in my room, uh, in my office by myself. So it feels like I'm talking to myself. And a lot of you will be familiar with this. Uh, when, we come, when we talk about social media, um, it mimics the same dynamic, which is gonna be really important. So that dynamic primarily being, when you're engaging with social media most of the time, you're having uh, a relationship kind of seemingly on the surface with yourself, because you're generally the only one there, while at the same time communicating to um, a larger community, either sort of a limited one via Facebook or perhaps a nearly unlimited one on something like Twitter if you have a public profile. So this uh, this paradox of being alone together to share your words is something I'm going to be reflecting on. And just so you know what to expect a little bit, we're going to do this first uh, 45 minutes. I'm going to be talking mainly about the findings in my book from the interpersonal uh subjective perspective, so what happens to the individual. Um, And then I'm gonna move on in the second half to talk about the more socio-cultural stuff that's going on in relation to social media, uh, which I kind of went on to research more past the book. The book focuses mostly on the individual's relationship to social media, um, but then I kind of realized, uh, you know, the book was published in 2014, that maybe we need to be thinking about socio-cultural. So many of you will be familiar with this guy. And if you recognize this picture, it was when he was speaking to Congress uh, in the USA about last year. And anybody who saw any of those hearings will kind of get a sense of um, what we should kind of be worried about. Uh, Basically, Mark Zuckerberg was running rings around the members of Congress who hardly understood the functioning of of Facebook um, just as a user, let alone the background algorithms and how it works. And we now live in a situation where actually very few people have comprehensive understanding of how social networks operate uh, much more than, you know, international uh, and national governments, um, which kind of produces some pretty serious questions about uh, regulation and how these things ought to be monitored. So we really need to understand it, um, I think, from a psychological perspective. And the more we understand it from a psychological perspective, the more we can engage Um, in regulation and how it's developed forward. And as we'll see in the second half of today's lecture, uh, really, really important, crucial moments here, particularly uh, in relation to how social media can affect things like elections. Before we get into that, uh, I'm going to talk with you about the personal. So um, everybody who has a social media profile should be able to relate to this in some way. And what I'm going to be doing is applying psychodynamic theory to the way in which we use different kinds of social media so that we can understand it more from a psychological perspective. But before we start, I want to do a little interactive uh, exercise with you. Um, this one tends to work better in real life than it does online because you are kind of beside the people that you're going to be sharing uh, the last book you read with. But what I do in a, in a live session is I take this beach ball. I blow it up and I throw it out into the audience and I, and I ask whoever randomly catches the ball the first time, just to say out loud uh, what book it is that they're reading at the moment um, or the last book they remember reading. Um, and that's all they have to do, catch the ball, say the book that they're reading, and then toss the ball randomly into the audience where somebody else does the same thing. So I'm going to toss an imaginary ball out there into the virtual world because those are our current limitations. And if you just in the chat bar, maybe let me know uh, the book that you're reading at the moment. And actually, I have a look at the chat bar here so I can read some of them out. Uh, Let's see. I see grassroots spirituality, 10 arguments for deleting your social media accounts right now. That one's wow. They're coming quick and fast now. City of Ashes, Wolf Hall, Invisible Women, uh, Camus, The Outsider, Myth of Sisyphus, another Camus. Uh, I'm sure you're all looking at your chat lines too. So The Shining. Oh, wow, that's a good one. Um, Sapiens. uh, How we get free. Maybe you should talk to someone. Lost Connections. Wild. Why we sleep. Learning to counsel. Let's see if i find. And getting our bodies back. Okay. Oh, the body remembers. There's another good one there. Now... It is, again, hard to replicate the real-world situation in an online situation, but what I usually do next is I ask people how they feel when that ball is coming at them, right? So in this situation, you're voluntarily putting something in a chat. There's a little bit of distance. Nobody's seeing your face. You're not saying the title of the book out to the entire room. When we're in a room together, you don't know whether you're going to get the ball. You receive the ball, and then you're put on the spot to say something out loud. And the lesson in this, in a sense, is what is the thing that happens to you in that moment of expectation when I ask the question and you've got to answer it in front of your peers? And what we often get is a lot of anxiety. And we get a lot of anxiety depending on uh, kind of what, what group is in the room. Sometimes these are groups where people are with their, you know, if it's a counseling training, for example, they're with their trainers, their tutors, maybe their supervisor. Someone in the chat just said, my mind goes blank. Um, sometimes it's just in a, a general conference, say on technology or a general conference on psychology or one like this, where we're looking at both and people get nervous. And the question is, why do people get nervous? Right. And that's what we're going to be talking. <laughs> Someone just said, oh, shit. Yeah. Okay. Isn't it interesting, though, that the oh, shit moment arises when I'm asking what you could say is a relatively banal question. What's the last book you read, right? What's the big deal? It's it's just a book, right? But we know the answer to that question because we know that you're not posting just the last book you've read, that you are making an identity statement, right? So it is one thing if you say, I'm reading Camus or Kafka, and it is another thing if you're reading Fifty Shades of Grey, right? Now You may be reading one or the other, but uh, who you represent yourself as to the world by way of the title of the book is about your identity and how you want to show up in front of people. So I imagine this is a smart enough crowd, so you kind of know you know where I'm going with this, right? So some of you may or may not be familiar with this expression. Anybody want to pop that one into the chat bar if you know what this, uh, this means? Give five seconds. Cool. Yeah, okay, thank you, Miriam. What you see is what you get this is kind of the idea, right? What you see is what you get. This is the book title I'm putting out there. This is the book I'm reading. But actually, when you think about it, what you get is not what you see. Okay. So we see the book title. We see Camus, for example, but we don't see the process, the emotional psychological process that's going on in somebody's mind uh, when they choose to say Camus out loud. We don't know that they're reading Camus. It could be Fifty Shades of Grey or it could be Camus. So we're going to start thinking about the process side of things because what you see is not really what you get. What what you get is uh, more than what you see. So if anybody out there is familiar with Freud's theory on dreams, it kind of comes in handy about now. So Freud said that when you're, Analyzing a dream, you have to make a distinction between what you call the manifest content and the latent content. You're going to be asking me, what, what, what does Freud's interpretation of dreams have to do with social media? And I will, I will get there, right? So the manifest content of a dream is what you dreamed, right? It's the images, the smells, the action, the stuff that you remember. It's the television show of your dream. That's manifest content. The latent content is the meaning of that dream. So, you know, this manifest content is uh, a symbolic representation of what's going on in your unconscious uh, that you're, that, that part of your unconscious makes into the dream to express the latent part that for Freud were parts of yourself that you didn't quite want to reveal to yourself. But what we know is that when we look closely into these things, manifest content is actually um, just a small part of what's going on in the dream. Most of it is latent, most of it is meaning. And when we look at current methodologies for research at the moment, particularly qualitative research, we also understand the same thing about content and process that in a sense, you can replace content and process with manifest and latent content is the stuff that you see. It's the words. So if you're doing research on Twitter, for example, you're looking at those tweets. Uh, the process is how you felt when I asked you to share the title of that dream. And just like manifest and latent content and process process is like 80% maybe 95% of what's going on and content is just a small bit. Yet most of the research that we do into things like social media and actually any qualitative approach just looks at content. So we're missing a lot. So if you think about that exercise very briefly, I could go uh, up and down the country asking groups of people what book it is they're reading and produce a research report that says people in this demographic are reading these group these books, um, but we wouldn't get any of the process. So those questions like, are they reading these books? How do they feel about the fact that they're reading these books? Why are they anxious that they're naming this book in front of their peers? All of the good stuff, basically, is process. And process is what we're going to be talking about today. So, let me just frame it for you very briefly. You know, we tend to get into this uh, state of mind that kind of states that, you know, technology is something essentially different from what we're used to. But actually, technology is just another kind of a tool. So, humans uh, distinguish themselves from most animals, except the higher primates, by their use of tools. And tools uh, are there to um, extend ourselves into our environment better, right? Uh, and then we just we devise tools to uh, interface with our environment. So for example, if we need to hammer a nail into a piece of wood, um, we can do that with a rock, but we can do it better with a hammer because we get leverage. So we develop tools from rock to hammer uh, to enable us to engage with our external environment better. But the thing about tools is that uh, they're not necessarily neutral, right? That they interact with our environments in the way we choose to interact. So a hammer can be a really brilliant tool to hammer a nail into a piece of wood. Um, It can also be an excellent tool to uh, knock somebody in the head with and kill them, right? So you can use a tool for another purpose. Um, You can also try to screw a screw into a piece of wood with a hammer and you won't do a very good job. So tools can be used for what they're intended for. They can be used for what they're not intended for well, or they can be used for what they're not intended for badly. Okay. So I want us to be thinking about our engagement with technology as uh, a very highly sophisticated tool that can be used well uh, or badly. It could be used for certain purposes and uh, for other purposes that it's not so good at. So if we kind of just model this out, and you'll see I like I like these models, using quite a few of them, imagine a self that is mediating between its unconscious, so what's going on in its psyche. Uh, you could include conscious awareness as well, and unconsciousness, and the environment. And basically what the unconscious does is it functions with the self to get its needs met in some kind of ways with the environment. Um, You can read unconscious in a variety of different ways. If you want to take it uh, from a strict Darwinian perspective, then you think uh, the unconscious is a drive that produces thirst. The self experiences that thirst and it goes into the environment to look for water. So that's a very basic way uh, in which this would function. If you want to get a more complicated situation and you take an attachment theory, for example, you could say that the unconscious desires love. And then it needs to go find love out in the environment, which is a bit more complicated task, as most people will probably agree, than it is to find a glass of water. So we develop tools to extend the reach of our needs and desires out into the environment. And if we kind of go back in time, we can look at sort of a a primate man um, who wants to get some food, clothes and tools that uh, he can make out of this deer. And what does primate man do? Um, he, makes a, he makes a tool, right? <clears throat> I've been told by many anthropologists that this is a terrible slide because Neanderthals did not make bows and arrows, but I think you'll probably get the idea. You imagine a spear instead. So we can see a leap in how we engage with our environments between uh, running after a deer um, throwing rocks, for example, and uh, getting a bow and arrow or a spear and hunting a deer properly. right? So the, the tool enhances our ability to get what we need. Um, but if we fast forward to modern times, um, we realize that our tools might make things too easy. So we take a modern person and we replace the tool with what any guesses uh, today in modern Britain about what you replace the bow and arrow with to get what you need. Okay, someone said a gun. I think uh, maybe maybe more in the United States more than in the UK, but sometimes. So the gun would be the direct relationship. I think uh, somebody got it right on the money though, uh, Olivia. Yeah, money, right? So money becomes this universal tool. So yes, uh, you can go out and shoot yourself a deer if you want to. There are not a whole lot of people doing that, but some are. Um, but all the rest of us get money um, and then we can buy what with that. We don't go for the deer anymore. We just kind of go for the burger, which we can get for very little money. And again, if we model this one out, what do we learn? Okay, that actually it takes a lot of energy and ingenuity to get that deer, even if you're using a bow and arrow. It doesn't take a whole lot of money or ingenuity to get that burger, especially these days when everything's on a deliveroo. So the consequence is that our uh, instinct drives us to get fat protein and carbohydrate salt and sugar in certain quantities but kind of has expected us to work for it Um, we don't need to work for it these days and the consequence is generally a less healthy population because the instincts haven't changed but the tools have enabled us to get us what we think we need more easily in proportions that aren't so helpful for us so i'm sure you can see that this is a metaphor for social media that we're going to be talking about we think about hierarchies of needs. Um, this is a internet meme that I quite enjoy. You know, we we think we need food, water, shelter, warmth first. Uh, but when you lose your Wi-Fi, you feel like you're in big trouble. And the question is why? You know, why does the loss of Wi-Fi suddenly create all of this anxiety? Um, when when you know there was no Wi-Fi twenty years ago, right? So something really crucial has changed. So let's think about this kind of widely and why this is all happening. And a lot of this has to do with the extension of ourselves through these tools that are technology and social media. So, technology enables the extension of the self into the digital world, which is a real world, even if it's virtual. Um, And psychology is the paradigm through which we can understand these extensions, because though we're extending ourselves through technology to get burgers with Deliveroo or Uber Eats, for example, um, we're also extending our psychology to get uh, in relationship with other people, particularly over social media. The motivation for all of these extensions is derived from the unconscious, and it's played out through our consciousness, the choices that we make when we go online. An online interaction is a dance between the platform and the psychic agency. And that sounds a little bit confusing, so I'll explain it a little more. The platform would be uh, whatever thing, app you're using online to get your needs met. And the psychic agency is that piece of your mind that you're engaged with in order to do so. So, for example... Um, uh the platform could be amazon and the psychic agency could be um ego and the drive would be learning so you log on to amazon to get the books that you need to feed the learning part of your your ego in a sense i don't mean ego in a pejorative way just that part of you that's an i which will be factoring in your interests um If the online platform is pornography, for example, the psychic agency could be id and the motivation is uh, sexuality, libido, right? So we can't make any large um, overarching statements or conclusions about technology doing something to psychology. We have to say what part of technology and what part of psychology. So if there's anything that drives me nuts is when people say the internet is doing this to people, right? For me, that's like saying um, the external environment is doing this to people, whether it's a workplace or whether it's uh, your home, right? So it, it depends where you are and what your needs are um, in order to engage. So also really important, our active online identities are both intrapsychic and interpersonal. And what that means is an active online identity rather than a passive one is the choices that we make when we go online. So when you go onto Twitter and you tweet, you go onto Facebook and you post, uh, or you just go on to look, you go into Instagram, you're being active. Your passive online identity is what happens when you Google yourself, that there's not uh, not a lot you can do about that. You, You plug your name in and this identity is produced on your behalf by Google. When we're making choices online, Those choices are intrapsychic, which means all those different parts of your psychology at work to make choices, conscious and unconscious, about what goes on there, and interpersonal. So it's coming out from what's going on inside yourself, but also your expectations about what's going on between people. So it's really important always to think that both of these things are going on. Right now, I feel like I'm in a room talking to myself, but I know I'm talking to all of you, right? Uh, so it's intrapsychic. I'm having this experience with myself, and interpersonal. I'm having this experience with you. So again, let's model this out, right? So we have our unconscious, um, and we all have an unconscious. And if you are from a Jungian persuasion, you'll also believe that we also share aspects of unconsciousness, and we're all in relationship with each other. So you imagine each of these blue balls as being one self and another self in relationship with each other being informed and led by unconscious desires, uh, fantasies, motivations, etc. And what technology does, like this tool, is it sits on top of that relationship and it mediates it, right? So when you're relating to another self through Facebook, it goes through technology. It doesn't mean that this big blue arrow stops happening. People are still interrelating with each other all the time and they're interrelating through technology. And it gets more and more complex. So you might be interrelating with the same person in real life and technology, or you might be interrelating with uh, a person in real life and other people that you don't know just through technology. So it works in a whole variety of different ways, but almost always interpersonal and intrapsychic. So um, if you want a tweetable from this this uh, lecture, this one would be it, right? Psychologically, we discover ourselves between ourselves and others, okay? For those of you who are familiar with Winnicott, you'll know that uh, there's no such thing as a baby. And What he meant by that is that the baby needs its primary caregiver uh, to understand who he or she is, right? Um, we're not going to go too deeply into developmental psychology, but developmental psychology is really, really important for our purposes here because we come from a place where our egos develop in relationship to others And actually what we do across social media, or what we try to do through this tool, which sometimes works, and sometimes doesn't work, is we try to discover ourselves between ourselves and others. Um, That's why we do it. That's the thesis that I'm going to be sharing with you today. That's the main motivation. I want to discover myself. I want to discover you. And social media is the way I'm able to do that. So when we look at something like uh, relational psychoanalysis, which is what I use to understand Uh, social media. One of the key ideas in that is recognition. And recognition is a very simple word, and that's why I like it. It's not full of jargon. Um, And the idea is, and you can see very well in this picture, when there is a baby that is experiencing its uh, unformed ego, its undifferentiated visceral experience, the job of the primary caretaker, which is so often the mother, is to recognize What's going on for that baby? And as the baby develops, that recognition turns into recognition of the ego, who that baby is, what the baby's personality will develop as. Um, and the baby starts to do the same thing with its mother or primary caretaker, starts to recognize when mom is anxious, recognize when mom is okay, and starts to alter their behavior in relation to the mother. Really, really important stuff. Now, Jessica Benjamin, who's one of the great theorists in uh, relational psychoanalysis, says this. She says, uh, recognition um, is to recognize, is to affirm, validate, acknowledge, know, accept, understand, empathize, take in, tolerate, appreciate, see, identify with, find familiar in love. So there are a lot of verbs going on here, but just as an example for you to think about how important recognition is, all you have to do is think of one important moment in your life, probably from your childhood and choose one of these words. Um, let's just take appreciate because it's an easy one. Um, think about a time when you required appreciation from someone, say a parent, and you didn't get it and how that felt. You know, like you brought home an art project from school and you wanted your mother or father to see it and like it and they just didn't, they didn't get it. Or imagine a time when you wanted appreciation and you did get it, right? The, this desire to be recognized as a real human being is absolutely fundamental to our functioning, and it uh, it's a motivation that we experience every single day, and it's a motivation that, in a sense, we require or ask for when we go onto social media. And you think about the uh, the complexity that I'm getting at in this slide here, and you imagine going onto Facebook and getting it through something like this. Okay, so. We may be sharing something across social media and that like or that follow or that retweet or whatever you want to call it is actually doing the job of an unconscious desire to be recognized, to be affirmed, validated, acknowledged, or even loved. So it's really important to conceptualize here with me the complex nature of that desire and the simplicity of how it's met uh, with online uh, social media. Now, it used to be that you could just like, but I think, I don't remember, two or three years ago, Facebook at least introduced a few more options, right? Mm-hmm. So you could like or be angry or say wow or laugh or love, which gave a little bit more uh, detail to the functioning. Um, but still, we're talking about, what, six six options here. Now, of course, we can make it more complex. We can add text. Uh, we could throw up a little uh, gif of something funny or video. We could share some music, so there is uh, an introduction of more complexity in meeting the recognition need, but it is still functioning across the social network. So if we go and kind of map this out again, um, we see our old model here, the unconscious two cells interrelating with each other, and then instead of technology, we choose which technology. Because as I've been saying, the architecture of the technology is so very, very important as to what gets mediated and how. So you imagine two people in relationship with each other over technology mediated by Facebook. And what does Facebook do? It speaks to the ego. So what is the ego? The ego is that part of yourself that mediates between your internal world and your external world. It synthesizes all of your unconscious stuff and produces it in a way That uh, you relate to the world as an I, as a subject. And the reason why Facebook talks mostly, not exclusively, but mostly to ego, and again, I don't mean this pejoratively, I mean the ego as the I, although it can have pejorative effects, is because Facebook is kind of like a virtual uh, public space. Now, what happens with the ego is it um, behaves in different ways, depending on which public spaces you're in. So if you're in a fancy dinner party, your ego is going to behave differently than if it's two o'clock in a nightclub and you're completely inebriated. So the ego will, will pitch and turn, depending on what its requirements are. And depending on who you're talking to on Facebook, your ego will do the same. And for most people, Facebook has a whole variety of different audiences from family to friends to work colleagues which in a sense has a consequence of reducing ego expression down to its lowest common denominator. You, know, you don't want to offend some people that might, uh, you don't want to appear one way uh, to one group and the other group. So if everybody's in one place, your, your ego is going to be relatively conservative, depending on who you are and who your Facebook following is and your settings. So, for example, if your Facebook audience is just close friends, your ego will feel a little bit more free to engage than uh, if it's a variety of people. So I'm throwing this up just so you can see that this is a model for Facebook and it will be different for different social media. Now, if we take the one person side of what's going on on Facebook, same model, you've got your unconscious communicating through the self, communicating through Facebook, Facebook kind of activating the ego. So that part of psyche, that is ego. And as you can see here, it's kind of tipping out. And the reason why I've tipped it out is because when you're engaging in Facebook, you are outward facing, right? You're in this environment. You're really engaged with what's going on outside of yourself. You tend to be less reflective. You tend to be very concerned about how you're showing up. And the consequence of this is that your ego tips out rather than in, and it kind of inflates, right? It gets concerned about how it is perceived and how it is perceiving others. So Facebook, in a way, is an exemplar of the tipped-out, ego-facing social network. Um, if we look at some of Jung's thoughts, uh, he called this outward tipping part of the ego the persona, which he described as a kind of mask designed on the one hand to make a definite impression on others, and on others, on the other hand, to conceal the true nature of the individual. Importantly, Jung did not think that the persona was bad. Like I said before, if you're at a dinner party or a nightclub, Your persona is going to be different and appropriately attuned to its surroundings. However, it can become pathological if, Jung says, one identifies with their persona, one no longer knows himself, right? So if you believe that the whole you is that outward tipping part of the ego, you lose access to the rest of you. Uh, Donald Winnicott, another psychoanalyst, had a similar idea. I compare these two quite a lot in the book. He talks about the false self. Um, which is also another word for this outward tipping part of the ego. So he says, this false self is set up to protect the true self. It responds to challenges in the environment. The false self essentially takes up the role of social compliance, right? So how do I be a good person out there in the world is the job of the false self. Some of us are better at this than others. And actually, in many people, false self could be quite subversive and actually not taking up the role of social compliance, for a whole variety of other reasons that we can't get into today. But similarly, Winnicott agrees with Jung, like, false self is fine, we need it, we can't walk around being fully ourselves all the time in all of our different environments, that would be unsafe. Um, So, yes, we need a false self, but we can't identify with that false self as being the whole thing, and he puts it this way. There are those who can be themselves and also can act, while there are others who can only act and who are completely at a loss when not in a role and when not being appreciated or applauded. So, when you become the whole of that outward tipping ego, you become identified with the false self, and then it becomes very dangerous. And then we have situations where, you know, particularly with young people, might be being suicidal um, after a bad engagement on Instagram, for example, because they have identified that whole false self-impression as being themselves, they didn't get the recognition they needed and everything collapses. So that's the far end where it can get quite dangerous. And of course, you know, this is, uh, this is the idea of the selfie, which was Oxford Dictionary's word of the year, I think in 2016 or something, kind of the exemplar of uh, an outward facing ego that wants to show itself out in the world, but also for some kind of public response, right? It really wants uh, it wants the world to see it. It's not a selfie unless it's posted outward. So it's a really good way of thinking about that outward tipping part. False self, this is another conversation. It's not really the best term because it actually isn't false. It's just a representation of the self for a purpose, which is created creatively. So a selfie isn't someone different from who you are. It's a representation of a part of who you are. So... I've been talking a lot about ego, so we want to just understand it a little bit better. You know, egos are part of our identity. There are stories, there are past, there are community identifications, political parties, that kind of thing. Um, they're how we show up in the world. So how we want people to see us um, and how we think we're seen, but it's not one single thing. We have conflicting urges. Um, we have conflicting desires. We want to be nice, but sometimes we're angry. That's, that's the conflict model of uh, the, the psyche. And the content of how we show up blind is based on a complex process that are all of these elements that are competing through ego uh, on the hand of Facebook, but um, other psychic agencies and other. And as I said before, you know, when we're online, this is an intrapsychic process and it's an interpersonal process, but very importantly, mediated by the architecture of the online environment. So you take something like uh, LinkedIn, it does something different. It appeals somewhat to the ego, but it really appeals a lot more to the superego because this is the professional self. Super ego being kind of like your conscience or how you judge yourself. And the reason why LinkedIn tends to be one of the more boring social networks is because it doesn't have much it in it. It doesn't have much desire. It's kind of, you know, how you dress up for a nice dinner and, and, and behave well. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with Silk Road, uh, which is closed now or the dark web, uh, you know, this is where you go online, not through Google, but through other means, uh, where you're completely, um, anonymous, um, and you can buy anything from drugs to guns to, um, putting hits out on people, uh, Silk Road kind of bypasses ego and often super ego and goes directly to the id, that part of yourself that is unregulated by conscience, um, that really goes for it. So. Uh, that there are parts of the non-dark web that appeal to this as well. So you imagine uh, pornography sites, but also, you know, Deliveroo, <laughs> uh, depending on your mood, um, can also appeal to those desires inside, you know, where your ego lets go and you're ordering a big, big fat cake or a double bacon cheeseburger in the middle of the night because you're hungry. Now, uh, another model, you know, we think about how our unconscious drives, to which we are very close, feed a lot of information into the cell right? And the self reaches out to use technology as a tool to engage with others. And if you just look at this kind of little cable here that I'm showing you, it's the thickest uh, in relation to the self, but uh, it starts to narrow. So, the, we are closest to our unconscious drives as an individual, even though there's a lot about ourselves we don't know. That's narrowed down as we decide what we want through technology, and that's narrowed down again when we're reaching out to others. Yeah? So, if I'm reaching out to others on Facebook, I'm not face-to-face, so the complexity is greatly reduced. Social media lowers the bar to access to relationships and everything else online. And this is very, very important. Um, It makes almost everything easier. If you want to find out about someone, you can Google them. If you want food, you can order it. If you want something from Amazon, you can get it the next day. It lowers the bar to access, which means our desiring parts of our unconscious can get its needs met quicker, just like the burger instead of the deer. And we also have an issue of scale. So I kind of call this the Tinderization of everything. When we're close to our unconscious drives and we use tech to have our needs met with others, um, once we have so many others, they start to kind of turn into objects. And if anybody is familiar with Dunbar's number, this is about 150 other people. We, We are able to maintain an idea of relationship with about 150 people. More than that, um, our brain simply can't hold information about them anymore. They kind of become more objectified. Um, And when you look at sort of the the unlimited nature of uh, right swiping or left swiping on something like Tinder, um, you can see how it easily objectifies other people because that bar is lowered to access other people. So I'm realizing that I'm kind of coming up on time a bit, so let's move towards our conclusions so really important and this is uh these are conclusions really for the individual and interpersonal section we're going to go into the global political socio-cultural later um let's remember that selfhood has always been extended into other people's minds right so that baby in relation to his mother um or her mother or his father or their father or their mother primary caretaker right what the baby wants is the parent to be mindful of them. And what we want in our lives is that the people that we care about to be mindful of us, that they're thinking of us when we're not there. So social media has made that more explicit. So it might be that your loved one is traveling and you're hoping that they're thinking of you, but if they can text you, which is kind of a, a very basic social media, then that extension is made more explicit. I am thinking of you. Um, the ar- The architecture of various social networking sites interface with the unconscious in a variety of different ways. So engagement on SM, by the way, is social media. It's not sadomasochism, although it's kind of funny because in this quote, uh, engagement on sadomasochism is driven by unconscious motivation would be equally true. But it's social media, right? So it's fundamentally relational. It's driven by recognition. And uh, depending on the social media, it may be dominated by outward ego expression. This slide is actually more written for uh, Facebook, I guess, than other things like uh, Twitter um, or the dark web. So I think I'd want to change that bullet, pr- bullet point. So when I wrote my book, um, I really went in with an open mind and wondered whether social networking really fundamentally changed things um, or whether this kind of paradigm shift was really overwrought. Um, I'm now pretty convinced that, yeah, it actually has changed uh, individuals and societies quite a bit for a variety of reasons that I'm going to go into now. So the instantaneous nature of engagement is part of it. And all of these things I'm going to say work synergistically with each other, meaning that you have the one thing and the next thing uh, enhances both of them. So we can share our thoughts with the world instantaneously without thought, right? So if you... You know, 25 years ago, if you read a newspaper article you didn't like, you'd have to write a letter to the editor, put it in the post, you know, and it might show up in that newspaper as a letter two or three days later. So that that instantaneousness is kind of new. We can also do this in relation to actual people, like celebrities and politicians uh, on Twitter. The ease of replicability, right? So we we instantaneously put that thing out there, and then it can be shared, reposted, copied, sent around the world super, super easily. So something that you may have intended for one person can suddenly be available to everyone, which makes our privacy vulnerable. We put it out there, it's replicated, more people know about it than we had expected, um, and it's instantaneous. Scalability, right? Something that we might share with an individual can suddenly be scaled to pretty much anyone in the world with an internet connection. So uh, the impact of that can be pretty huge. And the online disinhibition effect so this is the idea that what we tend to put online we tend to do easier than uh if we weren't online so we might say something in a tweet or say something in a message um, that we would be reluctant to say face to face so you can imagine how if you're disinhibited and it's instantaneous and it's replicable and it could be a threat to your privacy and it's scalable how quickly Things can uh, get out of hand. Now, most of us are kind of getting pretty used to this these days. Um, but this is kind of this is kind of an easy way to understand how that all works. So, in addition to all of these problematics, and I guess I also want to share, I'm not you know I'm not dystopian about social media, but these are the dangers of it once it's out there and replicated and scaled up. Um, it's very difficult to delete it. So we have this thing called the digital dossier or the cyber shadow that could follow us if it's related to us. Something that we posted online many, many years ago uh, can be found, which affects how other people perceive us. The low bar, which I mentioned before, all of this makes it easier. The low bar is very related to the disinhibition effect. And the aperture effect on complexity, which isn't something I spoke about too much here, but it's that idea that interpersonal recognition, face-to-face internet uh, recognition uh, is a high level of complexity that includes all of your senses, voice, body language, eye contact, smell, unconscious communication. uh, That's wide aperture, just like in a camera. Um, becomes narrow aperture when we go online. So a text message would be very low complexity, very small aperture, whereas a Skype conversation would be slightly wider, but not as wide as a face-to-face communication. The potential for objectification in the tenderization of everyday life. And really importantly for our discussions today, the platform's architectural effect on the psyche, right? So, uh, Really, you know, Facebook is different from Instagram, it's different from Twitter, it's different from LinkedIn, it's different from uh, uh, the Guardian comments page. And we have to be very precise when we're thinking about psychology, about how each of these things affect uh, different aspects of the psyche and then what the cumulative effect is uh, on individuals and cultures. So I bring us back to uh, the original question, what's the last book you read? Let's not think about this here as the last book you read. Let's think about this as uh, anything that um, you've posted online, right? So you're not sharing the last book you read. You are sharing more like these kinds of questions. You know, who are you right here, right now in front of all these people? How do you want to see yourself? How do you want others to see you? What part of you are you raising up and what part of you are you keeping hidden? Where is your private self and where is your public self? And these are just a few questions that I am proposing underlie uh, unconsciously and a little bit consciously almost every time we post something on any social media network. You are doing psychological work with regard to recognition, how you wish to be recognized, how you are recognized, how you recognize other people. And there are some uh, really important consequences uh, to that. So this pretty much draws an end to the uh, individual uh, part of the presentation. I think we're going to probably go into a break about now. Um, And then we're going to move into the collective consequences of these models. So this part is a little bit less psychoanalytic, but um, I thought it was really important to incorporate other sort of psychological perspectives, particularly when we come to the uh, collective. Um, Psychoanalytic is really good at looking at the individual. It has a lot to say about the collective as well, Um, but other forms of psychology have a lot to add. So I'm going to be talking about this. We're going to be getting a little bit more political and cultural here. And I'm going to start with this one, I'm afraid, which I'm sure we're all sick of hearing about, but uh, we're moving up to another big, big phase. And I want us to think about 2016, I want us to think about Cambridge Analytica um, and think about social media's role in all of that just for a little while, right? So these were the polls leading up to the big Brexit reveal. And uh, if any of you are anyone like me, um, you will have had a very similar experience that having seen the polls and having been in filter bubbles um, full. Full disclosure, I'm I'm quite a strong remainer. Um, I didn't think Brexit was going to happen. And I was utterly shocked uh, when it did, because all of the information that I was receiving um, from what we now understand as being filter bubbles uh, confirmed my hypothesis that it wasn't going to happen. And yet it did happen. Um, And of course, it was global news as a, you know, we stunned the world for uh, leaving the EU. Um, people who were on the leave side had similar impressions, right? That um, people were pretty sure that Brexit was going to happen again because of filter bubbles, but also because of the uh, the nature in which our society is really becoming more and more polarized. That even the polling organizations uh, were not having full access to the uh, multiplicity, real multi- multiplicity of um, opinions and political persuasions that people were having now when it came down to it uh i think that's yeah brexit was down to about six hundred thousand people on uh, uh who voted for it right so this is about one percent of the population now anybody who's interested in all of the machinations that happened uh around this and uh cambridge analytica because i can't go into great detail in the time that we have I would really encourage you to look at Carol Cudwallader's look in The Guardian and The Observer, who's been the investigative reporter, who's gone into all of it in great detail. Um, And it's really fascinating, quite frightening read. But she says, it's not a stretch to believe that a member of the global 1% found a way to influence this crucial 1% of British voters. Now, I'm not going to get into the nature of who and how, um, though it is really important and that there are some nefarious forces at work in it. I want you to think about this idea about not necessarily the 1% um, influencers, but the 1% influenced, right? So the idea that we're often stuck with is, um, you know, is social media really going to change my mind? You know, if I'm a pro- remain am I really going to be turned to pro brexit even you know even with loads and loads of fake news and filter bubbles and all this kind of stuff the thing is probably not but um, you don't have to be convinced only just enough people have to be convinced um, on any given notion in order to flip some very important conclusions It is possible that more than 0.6 percent of voter growth turnout between 2006 and 2010 might have been caused by a single message on Facebook. So this is another piece of work that was um, a get out the vote campaign that happened uh, via Facebook. This was a politically neutral campaign. So they weren't saying vote left or right. They were saying vote. But there's some evidence to say that more than a half percent of the voter growth that uh, in turnout that year could have been as a result of this campaign on uh, Facebook. And when we think about 0.6% of the population, okay, that's slightly lower than the 1% that turned the Brexit vote, but we wanna ask these questions about uh, who's getting out the vote, how they're getting out the vote, and then how uh, that might have a profound effect on on what's happening um, in society. Now, we're all a little bit too familiar with this guy. And importantly, uh, in 2016, before the Trump election, he uh literally said this right soon you'll be calling me mr brexit um, i don't think anybody called him mr brexit but what is he doing here i think in a way claiming some responsibility for what happened in brexit and many many people believe these days that the trump that that brexit in a sense was a trial run for the trump campaign Um, And we know through Carol Caldwell's work that a lot of the same organizations and a lot of the same funding came from the same sources behind the Trump campaign and the Brexit campaign. Um, And it's kind of ironic because when we think back to Obama's first campaign, uh, there was this real sense that um, they were the first campaign to really use social media um, as a way to bring out the vote. Um, and for those of us who are left of center, you know, thought this was quite a good thing. Um, but the way in which that campaign used social media and every campaign was using social media was, in a sense, more innocent back in those days. This was like um, about engaging people and about um, accessing people rather than about kind of manipulating people, which is now turned into. And uh, we have real reason to be a little bit nervous about what's coming up. Um, in November too, because uh, social media, again, is a, is a war ground. Um, and again, I also wanna say, this is not necessarily about nefarious actors. We'll get into this a little bit more. So there might be some manipulation um, from foreign entities or big money, but there's also a lot of issues with the basic algorithms, right? So you don't need nefarious actors to have consequential effects on what people are seeing and the kind of decisions that they're making when they're getting their news. From social media. So we move um, on to that election and this was like the night, well, let's see, this is October 31st, right? So election day in the US is November 3rd, so we're talking three days before um, our presidential forecast from the New York Times, highly respected uh, outfit, um, 90% chance that Hillary Clinton was going to win. For those of you who were up that night, the New York Times uh, election app had her at more than 90% on election night and Donald Trump on less than 10% that night and we all know what happened um we know what happened what happened but do we know what what happened why were we all taken by such surprise there's a lot of reasons for this again just so you can kind of put it in in perspective this is a uh, This is not over a great period of time. This is just over election night, right? So these are various polling organizations um, measuring the chance of a presidential win of Clinton or Trump Um, that just swapped when the numbers came in. So the the reality principle um, hit very hard and very quickly. Um, And for the entire time, up until, let's say, you know, 920, um, it looked like it was going one way in one way only. So what happened? The the Trump campaign had quite a lot of information um, from Cambridge Analytica, a lot of it, 5,000 data points on 220 million Americans uh, with personality profiles on all of them. I'll talk to you a little bit about how that works. 5,000 data points sounds like a lot. Some of them are more important than others. Um, One might be an IP address. uh, It might be what browser you're using, what computer you're using, you know, stuff that may not be too helpful, but some of those data points could be uh, more interesting, such as, uh, you know, how neurotic you are, um, whether you're a warrior or not, whether you're left-wing or right-wing, whether you're gay or straight, whether you're black or white, um, you know, some pretty personally identifying information. Uh, The Republicans also had something called the voter vault, um, which was another source of online information, which contained 300 terabytes of data, um, with more than seven billion microtargeting data points on more than 200 million voters. Now, these are just really big numbers, and if you don't know what a terabyte is, let's just say that 300 of them is a hell of a lot of information, and a lot of lot of lot of data points. This is really the nature of big big data that uh, we sort of voluntarily and involuntarily hook, wake up so much information about ourselves online that it's um, it can be quite disturbing. So what's going on? Now, we're going to be looking at the psychological part of this mostly. And for those of you who might be familiar with psychometrics, again, this is not a very psychoanalytic approach, but it is uh, psychological personality profiling, which is based on what is often called five-factor analysis, right? So uh, five-factor being uh, the the main personality types that have broadly been concluded over the years in academic and experimental psychology to be relatively representative of how people are. And the easy to remember acronym for this is OCEAN, and it stands for uh, openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Now, each of these function on a scale, so you can scale highly for openness, uh, in which case, you know, you are likely to, let's say, be adventurous in the kind of foods that you taste, maybe you're into bungee jumping, that sort of thing, or low in openness, in which case you wouldn't be open to new ideas, you would be quite conservative in your own ideas and have very low impact um, by, by other persuasions. So I'm going to go through each of these, but it's just important to know that they they operate on a spectrum, that there are relatively well-respected scales that can measure you um, as a personality in each of these areas. Uh, As someone like me, who's a little bit more psychoanalytically inclined, I have some reservations and some criticisms of this model, but it is a useful model and it does have its own um, uh, verity that that's... That's important to bear in mind here. So I was just talking about openness. Uh, Openness generally means how open you are essentially as a personality to new experiences, how curious you are, how creative you are. It involves sensation seeking, risk taking and unconventionality. So if you score high on openness, you're more on the uh, Salvador Dali side of things. If you score low on openness, um, you're going to be less interested in new experiences. You're going to be more of a safety seeker rather than a sensation seeker. And you're going to be pretty uh, dyed in the wool in your ideas. It's going to be very hard to change your mind about things. Conscientiousness has to do with how disciplined you are. So you're highly disciplined if you score highly on conscientiousness, preferring structure to spontaneity. So it is possible, for example, to score high on conscientiousness um, and high on openness. So they are mutually exclusive, but you can imagine where those overlaps kind of happen. Um, some people would imagine that a highly conscientious person wouldn't be a risk taker. Uh, but imagine, um, you know, a free uh, a free rock climber, for example, who uh, would be Sensation seeking on the one hand, but highly conscientious in in making that path up the side of the wall. You would have to be, or you'd be putting yourself quite at risk. Then we also have extroversion. So obviously, uh, in psychoanalysis, that's the opposite of introversion. Um, but in this model, it's just extroversion on a scale, right? So high extroversion or low extroversion. So if you're high, you're more the Lady Gaga end of things, sociable, outwardly focused, like to be out there in public or... or um, energized by being out in the world. If you're low on extroversion, you tend to be more of a loner, tend to like smaller groups of people, and that sort of thing. Um, Agreeableness, uh, just another word for being nice. People do scale high and low on agreeableness. So if you're scoring highly, you tend to be compassionate, warm, friendly, and nice. If you score low, you're more the prickly type. Uh, A little bit colder, not immediately warm doesn't mean that you won't be with a little bit of warming up, but as a general personality constellation, that's how it operates on agreeableness. Neuroticism is about worry. So if you score high on neuroticism, you easily experience uh, unpleasant emotions. You tend to be a worrier. You tend to be highly emotional, to be worrying about things um, more so than people who are low on neuroticism, who kind of just uh, more stoic in life. So how do you use these these psychometrics? So the way psychologists use them is they give you a measure which might have 500 questions on it, uh, asking you all sorts of things about, you know, in a party, do you feel like this? Uh, uh, Is your desk messy or clean? They're usually yes or no questions um, that after 100, 150, 250, depending on how many they are, you can get a pretty accurate read on where people measure on all of these five things at this point in their life. Now, uh, when we think about how these operated online, we have an instance where um, you take that ubiquitous online personality quiz, right? So, you know, which it could be something as in a sense is, you know, which member of friends are you, right? Or uh, which Star Star Wars character would you be? And you take a test that's maybe five questions or 10 questions um, that are basically, Uh, built upon the theory of the five-factor analysis. Um, So what happened early in Facebook, and this is done now, is that actually this five-factor analysis quiz was done. Um, It was promoted across Facebook. Uh, People filled it out, shared it with their friends, and basically, for free, uh, gave Facebook and the progenitors of this test uh, their five-factor analysis not necessarily with the accuracy of uh, a psychological assessment, but it turned out to be pretty close. Um, this information was basically scraped off of Facebook. Now they've made it so you can't do this anymore. So this was sort of a window in time. However, you know uh, the horses bolted the barn and, and it's pretty easy to create a five factor analysis of who we are simply based on the information that we put on Facebook. Now, imagine that you took this test, you shared it with your friends, they shared it, and then somebody really smart at Cambridge Analytica or somewhere else correlated those results to the things that you like, share, post, and any other user demographics on Facebook. So you wouldn't necessarily have to take the test anymore. It just turns out that people who would score high in extroversion also tended to like uh, Lady Gaga's Facebook page, for example, and that there was a high correlation between each of these things. So you can start using everyday regular behavior on Facebook to correlate uh, personality analysis based on the five factors. And then if you really wanted to get smarter about it, you would use that five-factor analysis as your audience to influence people. So if you wanted to reach out to... uh, Uh, high extroversion, high openness people, you would target your stories to people who followed Lady Gaga's page, for example. Now, obviously not just her page, but all of those other pages and groups that were correlated to high levels of extroversion. Um, Then imagine that you take something like neuroticism, people who are scoring high in neuroticism. So you would imagine people who are um, uh, Googling illnesses all the time, that kind of thing. Um, or looking at similar groups on Facebook and targeting worrying news at people who are already worrying. And you can imagine where we can go with this. So in the old days, for example, if you were in the gun lobby in America, you would be putting out television ads about why people should support uh, NRA supporting um, uh, candidates, right? Such is the sophistication now, and actually you can see this on a YouTube video, if you Google it, by Alexander Nix, who uh, was the director of Cambridge Analytica. We have two completely different gun-supporting ads going out to people who uh, had different five-factor analyses. So for someone who tests as highly neurotic and conscientious, to appeal to their sense of threat is the way in. So there were a series of ads that were promoted Um, that were encouraging people to uh, vote for candidates that protected the the right to bear arms so that by showing them the increase in crime rates or, as we know now, the perceived increase in crime rates, people would feel unsafe enough to feel that they needed a gun in their home and support someone who would do that. Now, you go to a different part of the country, you go to someone who isn't particularly neurotic and isn't actually worried so much about crime, Mm -hmm. Um, think about the great Western states like Wyoming, for example, where many of the people there have guns for, for hunting. For these people who showed uh, low openness um, but high on agreeableness, uh, they wanted to appeal to their sense of tradition, habits, and family. So the gun ads in places like, uh, well, they weren't even in places, you know, they're, they're, they're to people. Um, would show a picture of a father and son with a shotgun, for example, going out to the great outdoors to go deer hunting, and saying, "You know, do you want uh, the Democrats to take away your right to the great American tradition of hunting and uh, doing this with your family?" So, two completely psychologically aimed uh, perspectives—you um, know—to to to get to the same end. So, the sophistication of this is really. Really, something else. So, we want to ask the question here you know, how accurate is this? Do they really know? You know, do they really know you? And uh, when it comes to big data, the answer is kind of yes and no. Okay. So, some research has shown that when you go onto Facebook, um, 68, as little as say under 70, then Uh, 70 likes that you've had on Facebook um, can predict your skin color with 95% accuracy, can predict your sexual orientation with 85% accuracy, and your party affiliation with 85% accuracy. And it is said, I think, a little bit hyperbolically in this Motherboard article from 2017, uh, 70 likes... Facebook can know uh, as much as what your friends know about you, 150 likes, they can know what your parents know about you, and 300 likes, what your partner knows about you. And even more hyperbolically, more likes could even surpass what a person thought they knew about themselves. Now, I think this is just a little bit much. Um, First of all, we know an awful lot about ourselves that we are not sharing because of this whole nature of what I was talking about in the first part that you are making choices about what you share online for the most part because of uh, how you wish to present yourself and particularly when you're looking at Facebook you are presenting a particular image right so the start the parts of you that you're not sharing you may know about yourself and making choices not to share Facebook isn't going to know about you. Little bit more uh complex when you think about your entire usage on uh on technology. So I would imagine that Google may know a lot more about you than Facebook, primarily because they know everything that you're doing on Facebook, and they also know those things that you're searching for that you're not sharing, um, which might be a little bit more revealing than what you are sharing. So I'm just gonna check my watch here so I know how much time I've got left. Okay, we're still good. Okay, so it's not like pulling uh, a rabbit out of the hat. It's not a magic trick, right? So this is really important. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, somebody can know my, my skin color within, you know, less than 70 likes. Um, somebody can know your skin color by looking at you as well. So while it seems like magic, it's, it's not so much magic. When you think about the things that you give away when you go online with regard to your politics, your sexuality, your race, your cultural background, You know, we tend to, we do tend to give it away, right? It's not, it's not magic stuff. There is some of the, um, you do start to move into the magic when you correlate more and more and more of that information. And that's where those, those gun ads start to get a little bit scary. So uh, we tend to have this feeling about uh, going online that um, creeps us out a little bit. And here we move back into psychoanalysis a little bit um, to think about how, how, why, um, how it works, but also why it's kind of creepy. So, basically, the machinations that are going on in the background are these. Right, ourselves are categorized through these. Well, originally by how these these uh, tests were taken, but now pretty much just our basic behavior on social networks. Um, our algorithms, the algorithms within the network, identify the desired demographics. So, when you're choosing an audience to advertise to on Facebook. Um, By choosing audiences like this, and again, we can use the example of the Lady Gaga page for extroversion, you can find people who are relatively extroverted to advertise to, which is a level of sophistication well beyond what we had a very, very few years ago. And then what happens is fake and real news panders to those personalities. Now, this is really important, right? So I'm talking about algorithms here alone. So before you have, um, say a nefarious force who wants to submit fake news into your feed and is choosing to do that, the algorithms are already kind of doing that on their own. Um, Not because they were designed to be evil, but because their job is to produce like for like. So if you are, Liking lots of pages that are indicative of your fear of the world, you are more and more likely to see news stories, real or fake, about how scary the world is. So, this is before anybody gets involved, right? Really, really important to consider, okay? This is why we have our filter bubbles widening and widening. This, these algorithms are doing it on their own. They're not about presenting new information to us, they are about uh, enhancing. Our uh, confirmation bias, and then minds are changed. Or well, that's the idea. Our, our minds changed. Let's ask ourselves that question. Um, you'll be familiar with this model here, right? So now we're thinking about technology um, in that interpersonal level and that intercultural level, and we're thinking really between the the distinction between influence and manipulation. Okay, we influence each other as human beings. The algorithms influence us through uh, that relationship to our confirmation bias as well, and uh, there's another level that comes in, which is manipulation. So, if those news stories and if that content is made to appeal to our personality structures based on these uh, these conclusions made on the on the five factor analysis, it starts to turn into manipulation. But it does provoke that question again, doesn't it? Like, are they going to change my mind? Yeah, you think about uh, what's important to you in life, you know, if you're center left, center right, left or right, um, how you feel about um, abortion, how you feel about uh, Brexit, you probably feel pretty, pretty sure about your feelings and actually seeing some uh, news to the other side might not change your mind. Um, but big data kind of has a slightly different story depending on who we are trying to appeal to. So this is where the good news is. So i just go back here. The reason why I put this unconscious bubble here is big data is about big numbers. So this is about how we understand vast numbers of people based on important but relatively simplistic ideas about how people are, whether they're open, whether they're nice, whether they're Consciousness is much, much, much more complex. So, even if you have a relatively good idea of your fact, five factor analysis, uh, are far, much, much bigger. And big data is really interested in the nom- not the graphic. And quite simply, that means it's interested in numbers of people, not you, as an individual, at least not yet and uh, artificial intelligence is a whole other thing that I'm going but at the moment we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people and the assumptions that we can make about a small percentage of those people who are influenceable on some of these, these levels so big data is also all about the what and not about the why so do you know who I am? no, can some assumptions about me and then this I can't even read my screen and he's in the way. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Oh, now I've really got myself into trouble. Okay. I'm excited for why. This this is why I really want to draw this distinction between um, the big numbers and the small numbers. And the, yes, we should be concerned about what is known about us, but you can work with a psychoanalyst four days a week on the couch over 10 years, and you're still going to be discovering more. So I guess it's one level of reassurance that we're not at the stage of where Big Brother is inside your head, um, but we should be nervous and we should be on top of how things develop here. So again, you know, saying that was 2016, we think about um, the Obama period, the innocence of social media at that stage. You know, are we going to be looking back at 2016 and thinking that that's an innocent period? I mean, you know, a lot can happen in four years. What's going to happen this November is anybody's guess at this stage, but we do have some new things happening, which are very concerning, which I want to share with you. So many of you will have probably heard about uh, deep fake videos. Deep fake videos double in nine months. Uh, here's another one. Facebook tries to curb deep fake videos as 2020 election heats up. Uh, you thought fake news was bad, deep fakes are where real truth goes to die. So at the moment, in 2016, if you had some level of uh, critical thinking and a lot of people don't, which is part of the problem, you could, you know, you could see where a news source was coming from and maybe make some kind of decision, right, about whether you trust that news source or not. The worry is that a lot of people don't have that capacity and we're trusting bad news sources. What happens when those news sources, uh, you can't trust them anymore, and you really don't know the nature of the news that you're getting. Um, Are we, you know, I showed you that first picture of Zuckerberg at Congress, you know, can we trust, well, A, can we trust a government um, to stop this? And can we trust our governments uh, to stop these sorts of things when there might be an interest in that? And I think this is kind of worrying. So let me just, I need to come out of my share for a second here and share something else with you. I'm gonna share a little video with you here. Okay, Uh, I'm gonna go back to my thing here. So this was a deep fake of Obama, right? Um, Now, because of the nature of these deep fakes at the moment, you could probably have just about worked out, couldn't you, that um, it wasn't quite Right. And it kind of beggared belief. But, you know, these things move very, very quickly. And as far as we're aware, they might they might change sooner rather than later. Um, Ultimately, deep fakes are simply amplifying what I call the liar's dividends, as Danielle Citron. Um, When nothing is true, then the dishonest person will thrive by saying what's true is fake. So this is a really important quote that I'm including because it's not really just the nature of whether you can sell the fake news, as it were, through deep fakes. It's the fundamental assault on truth that is the issue. So everybody starts doubting the sources when the sources in live video feed, for example, can be mistrusted. What adds to this, particularly from the psychoanalytic perspective, is Freud's idea of the uncanny, where the uncanny is this kind of almost like home, but slightly not home, right? It's kind of a paradox. So uh, the nature of what makes deepfake so uncanny to us now is that the technology is a tiny bit short being perfect. So um, it... Thrust us into what we call this uncanny valley right so that you look at that face and it's like almost like you expect that face to be but it's also slightly different this is where horror films kind of really live you know at this that slightly askew moment that can't possibly be right um how deep fake develops over the next short years and how much we are thrust as a society into uncanny valley um, is anybody's guess here's another kind of i need to come out again another kind of uh not beautifully done um deep fake but kind of amusing at the same time again you can see uh we can tell that these are deep fakes because um of the slightly not perfect uh rendering um but let's see what happened between again 2008 2016 2016 2020 we really are and this is where I, i do tend to get a little bit pessimistic we really are on uh Precipice of some potentially scary stuff, and the more that we learn, I think, from a psychological perspective, from the inside, from the ideographic rather than the nomothetic, meaning the individual's perspective rather than the big numbers, um, the better we're going to be. Now, what happened in two thousand sixteen? A little bit easier uh, to understand from the perspective of the United States is that um, that. One percent of the population only needed to be um, affected uh, in order for change to happen. So this was, in a sense, a kind of an accident of the the messed upness of the American electoral system um, with the electoral college. So because all of the electoral votes from a given state go to the the winner, um, those three states uh, in the Rust Belt, you know, um, what was it, uh, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania maybe one other, you didn't need to change a whole lot of minds. Some of those states were won by less than 10,000 votes, which is actually less than 1%, okay? So if you can accurately and smartly target a political system and use social media influence and manipulation to change the minds of just a few people, um, you can affect serious, serious consequences, right? So people tend to think you need to change lots of minds. Um, You don't need to change lots of minds. Okay, I'm going to leave you with one more amusing video. This one of our friend Mark Zuckerberg.
0: I wish I could keep telling you that our mission in life is connecting people, but it isn't. We just want to predict your future behaviors. Spectre showed me how to manipulate you into sharing intimate data about yourself and all those you love for free. The more you express yourself,
1: the more we own you. Okay. A little bit creepy because uh, obviously that was a deep fake too, but that one was pretty accurate. So we are uh, moving to some serious accuracy when we come to these, uh, when we come to these situations. So uh, let me just bring us to an end and then we can move right into Q and A. Here we are. So um, do we need to be reconsidering, what we do on Facebook, it's kind of, it's a little bit too late, right? I, I, the, again, the horse has left the barn. We we need to be concentrating on critically understanding fundamentals and moving towards some kind of uh, regulation based on a more general psychological understanding of how these networks affect us. Um, and at the moment, I think that there's not enough work being done, particularly on that qualitative process bit that we were talking at the beginning. Really important stuff with the big numbers, but what's going on interpersonally, Uh, this one we saw. Uh, And that's what I'm going to end on, maybe a little bit depressing. So maybe I'll just say one more thing before I I stop. Um, There is a potential enabling, um, which I probably didn't talk enough about today, Um, That social media can offer and that technology can offer a potential to reach out to different kinds of people um, to seek support where support doesn't exist. Um, You imagine uh, at the moment there are people living in all sorts of countries that don't have access to information, that can access information, that can really help them. To quote uh, Kramsberg, he said, you know, technology is neither good nor bad, but nor is it neutral. Um, I think that's really important. Technology isn't neutral. The algorithms are not neutral, but it doesn't mean it's a bad thing either. We just have to be um, very thoughtful and very critical about the next steps that we take as individuals and as a society. And I think what I'm going to do is stop my share screen there. Have I done that? Um, Bring Niall back and we can move into the Q&A.
0: That was was really, really interesting. So we've got a few questions here from... some of the participants. So the first one is from Olivia. She's asked, can you say anything about how neurodiversity shows up? For example, might autistic people benefit socially or relation, relationally through certain platforms for social networking than face to face or not?
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And and this is actually one of those examples about uh, where great potential is offered by social media. My particularly My particular interest in this is in relation to psychotherapy and neurodiversity. So for example, um, while one of the great losses across the board is when people trade high complexity interpersonal interaction for Facebook, that's where you get the loss of recognition, Uh, for people um, who experience themselves in some way on the autistic spectrum, neurodiverse, that level of interpersonal complexity is actually inhibiting and very, very difficult, right? Um, So it would be more difficult for some of those people to engage in a therapeutic session face-to-face in a room. It's just too much, right? So one way to handle that is to move on to video conferencing, which is one level of remove. Another level is to move on to text communication, even, where the release, the, 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 the less complexity enables greater engagement. And it's the same way socially, right? Again, all these things have to be kind of measured, but it's sort of like, um, someone who's on who finds that intercomplexity, interpersonal complexity difficult might be able to join an online forum where there's greater potential for social connection without the fear of that complexity. And a lot of this actually happens in gaming environments. So you have like big social environments, you know, in online gaming where people feel much more comfortable engaging than others. The catch, which I'll just throw in there, is um, complex interpersonal engagement is still really important. And what you want to try and do is develop uh, towards more of that if you can, because it can also have a collusive effect where um, you stay in that safe world and you stop taking those interpersonal chances outside, um, which isn't just a neurodiverse thing, it's happening right across society in relation to dating and dating apps, right? So people are having low level interpersonal connection, whether they're on Tinder or Grindr or whatever. And then actually after the second or third date, if you get that far, the interpersonal complexity of actually meeting someone in real life and not just through an app becomes challenging. Yeah. So we need to develop that skill.
0: For sure. For sure. Okay. So the next one's from Julie Dixon and Julie says that she works with the young adults who often get into a pickle with what they post in social media. Can you recommend any resources that she can use in her work? Uh,
1: well, <laughs> I guess I would recommend, I'd probably recommend uh, my own book, uh, Keep Your Cool. I wouldn't recommend Psychodynamics and Social Networking, but there is a section in there about how to manage your social media. Um, I think as someone who's working with young people, there's kind of two sort of, I don't know if it's two, there's some general rules that I would sort of recommend. Um, and the first one is always, I always say always curiosity first, right? So there's always this kind of will to want to either want to do something fix something stop something tell them to stop something right to like stop this this craziness that's happening and it's like okay first be curious wonder what's going on wonder why it's going on with that person why that person is making those choices and uh, so, so you can kind of fill in that recognition piece. Someone's going onto the social media seeking something, they're getting something different, which is damaging. So let's find out the whole picture before we say, we'll just come out of the WhatsApp group or whatever it is. And the second thing for adults and young people is always work towards an active relationship with your technology rather than a passive one. Mm. So most people will have their notification settings at passive. Meaning however it's set up, you get your notification, you know, you, you, when your emails come, the notifications come, um, uh, your, your feeds are coming in passively. We need to help each other make wise decisions about how we use the social media and how we set the notifications and settings so that we are more and more in charge of what happens rather than enabling it to be in charge of us. Which is the short, the short answer to probably a whole day's workshop. more.
0: Brilliant. I love that that I think that has the potential to improve a lot of like interpersonal relationships a lot of conflict just that one rule um to, to have curiosity first that's so powerful you know
1: yeah we um, tend to get quite defensive and, and anxious don't we so we just want to like take it away you know we, we forget that you're going you're, you're drawn there for a reason so let's find out why.
0: big time big time okay so <laughs> Next one if you were advising Mark Zuckerberg on how to optimize Facebook for mental health and well-being is there anything that you would tell him any advice you would give him
1: Ah, uh, probably a lot but I'll tell you I had an interesting conversation I was actually involved in a um uh, in a consultation with Facebook around their um hate speech and violence uh, kind of protocols so what they allow and what they don't allow and when they should ban people from talking when they should not and in the conversation with the guy who's doing the consultation he said something like um i forget exactly what word he used i wish i could think of it but he said the reason why we allow so much of that is because um because we want to encourage i I forget i really wish but it was something we 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 wish to encourage um cross cross communication or something. So somebody says, um, this person should be killed. This is like a a violent speech or hate speech. And they wanna give the opportunity for someone to say why they shouldn't be killed. This was kind of the the justification. And the reason why I wish I could remember the exact words is that those words that he chose indicated a very content-based understanding of what goes on Facebook. So yes, you have the opportunity to produce content of a contrary point of view. No, they shouldn't be killed but it doesn't actually engage process. All it does is it increases um, a polarized, angry back and forth situation. Right? Okay. So they had a total misunderstanding that by somebody having the opportunity to state an opposite point of view, is an engaged dialogue around that point of view rather than just a tennis match between people. And he really said, he said, I never really thought of that. Like I never never really thought that there was a difference between engagement and, and playing tennis with words. And I said, the more that Facebook can use its platform to enhance engagement, the better. And the opportunity to say one thing or the other is not engagement. So that's one thing I would say, it's find out ways to increase engagement. And the other thing is like, work out your bloody algorithms, right? Like you need to create algorithms that include diversity of view and background and culture in feeds or we're in big, big trouble. So rather than, uh, duplicating confirmation bias, something like, you know, it's like the old, the, the, I call that the French radio thing, you know, in France, uh, uh, some, some, like 40% of the music they play on French radio has to be French music, right? They don't want just all English music in France. So it's like some percentage ought to include diverse views alongside the capacity to engage with them rather than shunting us more and more into, uh,
0: uh, filter bubbles. Big time. And I suppose leading on from that, a good question to ask would be on an individual level, how can we, how can we monitor our own confirmation bias and ensure that we're not just going further and further down our own kind of rabbit holes and how, like, do you have any habits that you do to keep yourself objective about the information that you're consuming?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because a lot of it is toxic. There's a, there's a friend of mine in the States who, uh, who says that he he makes himself watch 20 minutes of Fox news every, every <laughs> night to, to, to have the experience of what actually most people are consuming. Um, and I, I find some of the, I find some of the discourse on some of those networks so toxic that I find it difficult to watch, but I find it's about, you have to find a way to engage with people, right? So it may not necessarily be, um, the way you're consuming news, and I'll give you an example that's very fresh from me, from last night. I late last, I try not to engage in Twitter in the in the ways that I'm advising now, but last night I did, and I posted something that was a little bit angry and a little bit mean about what's going on in the, the Supreme Court nominations in the states. And some guy tweeted me back and said, um, basically, that was <laughs> that, that wasn't very nice, and uh, uh, I don't think you're being particularly objective, and something else. And I was a little bit pissed off that, that he tweeted that. And then I kind of looked at my tweet and I just decided like, this is a non product like it's a non-productive tweet. And actually you can look at my Twitter and see the deleted tweet, maybe the conversation I had with him afterwards. But I deleted the tweet and then responded to him and said, I don't really agree that anybody can be objective, which is what he was asking for. Um, but I don't think that my tweet was productive. So I took it down. And then he sent me a direct message Later, saying, I really appreciate you taking it down. And this is what I think. And then I sent him a direct message back and I said, I don't, I don't agree with your point of view, but I would always prefer dialogue over being nasty. And then we had a talk in the direct message bit, which is yeah. brand new, right? So it's kind of like you're never going to be swayed by watching a, well, you're very unlikely to be swayed by watching a YouTube video or a bit of, or reading the Telegraph or the Guardian or whatever it is that doesn't share your views. But if you really speak to a person who holds those views with an open heart and an open mind and try to uh, endure your own defensiveness, usually with another person in a highly interpersonal complex environment or more complex environment, you can allow yourself to move a little bit further and at least empathize and understand. So the more of that, the better.
0: For sure. That's, that's great advice. Um, the next question here is from, is from Bia. I'm I'm pronouncing that right, Bia. Um, but Bia says, you've discussed social media being a meditating force between various individuals, but there's a sense in which people are increasingly engaged with social media platforms as objects or others in and of themselves, as if algorithms themselves have sentience, for example. Um, because so could you maybe speak a bit more about that there, Arne?
1: yeah. So, um, this is, this is the great paradox is that like, when I started this talk, I said, I'm kind of, I feel like I'm talking to myself here, but I can see that I'm talking to 72 people. So that, so there's two really important things here. One is yes, that has an objectifying capacity, which does not help where we're trying to go. So we are in a sense, fundamentally already geared up to objectify across the media And this thing that I mentioned before about Dunbar's number, the 150, I don't wanna go like way, way too deeply into it. And I know we're nearly out of time, but basically the the reason why we have this Dunbar's number is called the the social brain hypothesis, which is the idea that we developed human brains so that we could maintain and understand levels of trust between individuals in hunter-gatherer tribes, right? So somebody gives you some food one winter, uh, you give them food the next winter because there's the, a the, the reciprocity there. Somebody stiffs you one winter, you don't trust them the next winter, right? That, that's what it's about. And what's interesting is on Facebook, they found that even if somebody has 5,000 friends, maintained relationships, that's people that you're actually posting with, is almost always, it's under 150, it's about 120. So you're still in Dunbar's number, even though you have this. But as soon as you surpass Dunbar's number, you're back into objectification again, because you can't hold in mind more than those amount of people. So these are the two, these are the two. So we are geared through the architecture of the network to objectify rather than to subjectify. So there are some cures within the network that I talked about before fixing those algorithms to ensure that we're getting different points of view and to see if there are ways to increase engagement rather than the back and forth. But unless we have the in real life moments to share with other individuals who have diverse views of ours, we're not going to cure it online because online is part of the problem.
0: Yeah. So important. Um, Have you got any social media advice for people who would consider themselves introverted? So uh,
1: Yes. um, Use it as a way in and develop. I mean, it's hard now in COVID times because we're all, we're all, you know, we're all introverted and and more introverted people in a sense had fewer opportunities to practice their extroverted side. Um, But I would say use your social media as a step up towards enhancing the muscle that allows you to challenge your introversion, right? So Create enough safety in the relationship to go out there and experiment more with the high high complexity interpersonal stuff. And I would say the same thing for those people who are more extroverted, where it's easy to be out there all the time. Challenge your introverted muscle by doing the same thing, by coming off, by doing it less, by spending more time with yourself. You know, because whether you're on one side, introversion or extroversion, you can always practice and strengthen your uh, less developed side, and one side is not no better than the other. It's just better to have some strength in both.
0: Really like that. Um, you mentioned in your talk uh, that you can there, there are some limitations with the ocean model um, mm-hmm. from a from a psychoanalytic perspective. Could you maybe maybe tell us about some of those limitations, please? Aren't so?
1: I I think I mean where where there's a commonality is this idea that personality in a lot of ways is kind of fixed. You kind of are the way you are. Like I've said, the introversion, extroversion thing. If you're mostly introverted, you can develop some extroversion. If you're mostly extroverted, you can develop some introversion, but you're not going to become an introvert or an extrovert. The other. So if you view the five, uh, that five model as a personality structure, you also understand that in different contexts, you may operate differently in those spectrums. So, it might be that um, you score relatively low on openness, um, but like the example I was giving you before, um, you might be high on agreeableness and you might have a one-to-one conversation with someone who can enable you to be more open, Mm -hmm. right? Because because it's contextual. So your agreeableness allows you to be maybe interested in what somebody else has to say. You're gonna be nice, you're not gonna be super defensive. And that might get into your openness. And the, and the Freud's model, which is basically the, the, the conflict model, is that there are parts of us that go one way and there are parts of us that go the other way. And then we're in conflict and what we produce is a result of that conflict, right? So I hate you and I love you. So I'm going to be like, uh, touch it, you know. And sometimes I'm going to be nice and sometimes I'm going to be passive aggressive. Right? It's like that both things are operating at the same time. So the, the criticism is that it's all happening at the same time, that there are parts that are open, there are parts that are less open, they will be in conflict with each other and they will produce a result. And the more insight we have, we can become aware of the parts of us that are closed down and the parts of us that are more open and kind of uh, grease up the wheels of that that conflict, which enables us to have more flexibility when we're in the world. Yeah, so it's not totally fixed.
0: Very interesting. And how can someone develop more kind of self-awareness around these areas? Like, would that have to be done through therapy or have you got any other things that people could do to increase their self-awareness around around that
1: yeah i mean i think i think therapy is obviously really helpful i mean i'm a little bit biased but i think you know to take the time every week to sit down and be curious about yourself for the benefit of personal insight i think it's really good um I think mindfulness meditation is also really helpful, um, but you kind of have to know how to do it. And that might take some training because it's not just sitting and breathing. It's that non-judgmental curiosity about what's going on inside of you. And for some people, formal practice of mindfulness is really difficult, but I think you don't necessarily need it. I think the more you become aware of yourself when you're wound up, for example, if you catch yourself being wound up, that's a really good moment to be curious about what wound you up, right? Mm. So you step away from that and you'd be like, okay, why do I feel so tense right now? I'm just going to wonder. And maybe you, maybe you write about it in your journal. Maybe you talk to a voice memo on your phone. You just take the opportunity to be curiously non-judgmental about it. So the next time you get wound up, you have a little bit more knowledge.
0: Um, we've one here from Stephen Wright and Stephen says, do you think algorithms should be tweaked to offer a balanced flow of information? So they offer information that is antithetical to your personality and current worldview. And do you think this could work in combating polarization? So I, I think yes, but it's, it's controversial. I,
1: I think that social media needs to do some social engineering. Okay. Um, when I was a kid uh, I was, I was in the era of busing. So it was like when they were desegregating schools in, in the U S right. So um, they would bus white kids and black kids backwards and forwards so that they were all going to school together. And I, I think I really benefited from this experience. And that was social engineering. It was just like, if, if all the white kids in the suburbs are going to school with each other and all the black kids in the city, which is like it was where I grew up, are going to school together, you're never going to get this high complex interpersonal relating, right? Mm. So I had that. I had really great multi-ethnic, multicultural upbringing that was um, designed by the people in power at the time to intentionally make an algorithm, right? So I think, yes, but the danger is, but it's the same danger we have now. The the danger is you're asking a few people in power to make decisions about how to socially engineer uh, our our global community online. In defense of that very scary proposition, I'd say we're socially engineering already, but kind of passively. So those algorithms are Pushing us all apart into filter bubbles. So even though that's kind of happening in a kind of automated way, shouldn't we automate it in a way that yes does increase our um, our, our our interrelations to to people that we would be less familiar with? You know, what would it be like if Republicans had at least twenty percent of their feed fed by Democrats and vice versa, or Palestinians and Israelis, or you know any conflict zone? where you just kind of have to have that encounter. Who knows, but it's gotta be better than what we've got now.
0: It's such a good idea. Like almost like before you get to read the news that you wanna read, you should have to read the other sites first. You kind of have to earn your confirmation bias that way.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Although I think it's, le- it's, it's gonna be less effective with a news feed than with a person feed, right? So it's like, um, cause people will impact you. Whereas news is easier to be like, you know. <laughs>
0: Definitely, definitely. Um, We've got one here from Ruth. Um, Can you give a basic survival advice or a basic survival guide to master today's information climate? It's a big question.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, I always come back to this um, active versus passive. So the vast majority of us are passive recipients of what our smartphones throw at us. And we just have to make decisions. So this thing that we were talking about before about um, finding yourself wound up, people are like, they're like um, going through their feeds and they're getting wound up and they're not even aware of it, right? So you're like scrolling through, you're getting angry, and you're scrolling and scrolling more and it's got you, right? It's got you in it's clutches. So it's like, wow, if you became aware that scrolling made you anxious, you might choose to scroll less, right? So I say, take control over your tech, make a decision when you're going to check right? So if you're going to check your Facebook or your Instagram, don't just do it when you're bored, decide when you're going to do it and how long you're going to do it. Turn your notifications off so that you're going to look at your notifications rather than them telling you to look. Take my, my, my favorite piece of advice, which I've now done for five years. I don't have the email app on my phone, so I can't check emails unless I'm sitting in front of a computer because I realized they were winding me up and there was nothing I could do on my, you know, it took forever to respond to an email on my phone. I'd rather have the keyboard in front of me. So use your insight, work out what's getting you nuts and stop doing it so much, right? And I think that's better than a digital detox. It's great to take a week off, but if you're coming back and engaging in the same behavior, you're you're in trouble. So decide how you want to engage in stuff. And like your suggestion, read the alternate news, but find the time when you can do that without being too disturbed and for how long. Yeah. Look at your feeds, but decide when you're going to do that. And if you're looking at feeds and it always causes you grief, don't look at those feeds anymore unless you can really determine that it's, it's helpful for you.
0: Yeah, that's great advice. Um, we've just got a couple more questions here before we finish up. Um, have you got any documentary recommendations in this area that people could check out?
1: There's a brand new one on Netflix at the moment called The Social Dilemma, which is really good so i think it came out two weeks ago i'd say yeah definitely watch that um there are probably a few more that i can't think of offhand but um that's a really good that's a really good cool
0: um and in terms of the optimal use of social media for society do you know if there's any specific countries that are doing that that have practices or recommendations that are working especially well or is this is it too universal? Is there any countries you know of that have different policies in place around around these things?
1: Well, I know that there are some countries that, that ban the use of them and they're, they're usually totalitarian regimes and that's more so people can't uh, organize, which I don't think is brilliant. The fundamental issue is, and we see that really problematically everywhere now, is that these are corporations, right? So, you know, Facebook is a corporation based in one country that operates globally. So it's very difficult to regulate modern corporations and governments, are, governments are, are weak. So I'm not aware of any countries that are, just those ones that sort of ban it. Um, but I think it's gonna have to be, it's gonna have to be a global response. You know, governments have to reform to work out what they need to be doing influence the corporation.
0: Okay. Um, Okay, so the last question here from Maya, Um, have you published any academic papers or studies on this, or do you recommend any that we can read in addition to your books?
1: So there's uh, one quite psychoanalytic paper that I wrote um, called TMI and the Transference, LOL, which is in, uh, it's like, uh, I think if you Google it, you'll find it. It's probably behind a paywall, but it's it's um, it's actually a clinical example. So those of you that are clinically interested, um, although it is pretty much been the the, the second chapter of the book is, is broadly that paper re- repurposed. Um, most of the work that I've done since the publication of the book is more publicly accessible stuff. So articles in the Huffington Post or or places or blogs or that that sort of thing. I kind of moved out of to academic work. Um, although uh, a guy called Jakob Johansson, who is based, uh, he's in, I, I don't know, I think maybe UCL, but I'm not sure. Anyway, yeah, he's based in London. He's an academic, has recently published a book um, I can't remember what it's called, but it's also a psychoanalytic perspective on uh, social media, which I'd recommend. I think it's you might want to get it from your library. I think it's like 90 pounds or something hardback, but um, there is some good stuff out there.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Right. Well, one more actually from Inderjit. Uh, she's asked, any thoughts on the Black Mirror slash China idea of social ratings based on online, online activity to give a social rating that can be used in day-to-day interactions? What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, love Black Mirror, and I, I know this episode that she's talking about in relation to what they're doing in in China um, with regard to social credit. Um, I think in many ways, we're kind of there already, um, which is kind of disturbing. Um, I don't know what more to say other than that the, uh, the dystopian perspective that Black Mirror gives us um, offers us a lot to think about. Um on the good news side of it, the uncanny feeling that it gives us is an important indicator of the direction that we want to move as human beings and why it's so important to um, develop critical psychological perspectives on the ways some of these technologies are going to move independently, right? So I think, um, again, Sherry Turkle, oh, there's another There's another one, Sherry Turkle, she's psychologist based at MIT. Tea, wrote Alone Together and a series of other books about psychology and technology. Uh, one of her quotes is, um, technology may give us what we want, but not necessarily what we need. Mm. So um, we really need to go back to that insight and say, what do we, you know, Tinder is a really good example. Deliveroo is a really good example. It satisfies this want, but then we find ourselves needing something more. We get the, the date, but we don't get the, relationship that we're really looking for if you see what i mean so we really need to move away from the once find out what we really need is complex psychological emotional beings in the world
0: for sure well i think that's a great great point to end on and i just want to say thanks again for taking some time to share some of your knowledge and wisdom with with us today it's been an absolute pleasure to have you um have you is there anywhere you'd like to send people online? Uh, is there anything you'd like to share about Stillpoint and the work you're c- currently doing there before, before we head off?
1: Yeah, well, Stillpoint, I, I wish I were in a position to, to launch it now, but we're actually going to be launching a uh, social network for the Psychologically Curious probably in October. And it will be a place to go share information, get really good content um, about the stuff I'm talking about today in relation to all sorts of social interesting issues. So go to the Stillpoint Spaces website, um, join our newsletter, and then we can let you know it's going to be free um, for everyone. So uh, that would be great. I'm really, I'm really dead curious to know myself how that's going to work and whether it's going to work well. Um, Otherwise, you know, you can find Stillpoint or myself on Twitter, Instagram, usual places. I do have a professional Facebook page, but I don't actually use Facebook myself anymore for relatively (laughs) obvious reasons.
0: Awesome. And whenever um, the lockdown ends and people are looking for like a, a space to work in London, I, I used to be a member of Stillpoint Spaces in London, and it's just a great community, great place to work. And they've also got like therapy rooms to rent, rent out there as well. So it's, it's a great place and I highly recommend it. So Aaron, thanks a million for taking the time. It's been a pleasure. And speaking Yeah, to thanks.
1: You. It's been great to see you. And it was great to see you every day back when you used to come to <laughs> our co-working. So it's really, really nice to see you now. All Have right. a good rest of your day.